Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and turn again to Luke chapter 11. Today's text is Luke 11, 5 through 13. The title of the message is The Generosity of the Father. We're going to be in this section of Scripture for the next few weeks. But here in chapter 11, we've been studying the model prayer. In fact, we took three Sundays to look at the first four verses. And I want to remind us all that the Bible is God's story. And so we read any passage, including the model prayer, we want to ask ourselves the question, what does it tell us about God? Well, the model prayer, though it's only four verses long here in Luke 11, tells us a lot about God. First of all, He's a Father. That's how we're to address Him, our Father who's in heaven. He's holy, holy, hallowed be Thy name. He's a King, Thy kingdom come. Kings reign over kingdoms. And He sustains that kingdom with His daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. He's a forgiver of sins. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So his expectation for his subjects, his children, is that they model his behavior, that we are like him in every regard, including being quick to forgive. And finally, he's a protector. Lead us not into temptation. He protects us against temptation. So this morning, I want to circle around to a statement we made about God and his nature last Sunday. And what we said is that not only does God have the ability to provide, that is the cattle on a thousand hills are His, He has no shortages, but He is able and willing to provide for the needs of the children. In other words, I want us to think deeply today about the generosity of God. Now many times when we study the model prayer, we do so out of context. And what we tend to do is carve the model prayer out of Luke 11 or out of the book of Matthew and we study it in isolation. And I think that is a fundamental mistake because the next section of Luke 11 is really a commentary on the model prayer. And so let's read that section. Luke chapter 11, verses five through 13. Jesus is speaking. Then he said to them, that is his disciples, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey. I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, in these nine verses that I just read, Jesus declares clearly the reason why his followers should not only pray, but pray bold prayers. 
It's not because of their inherent goodness, not because of their ability to please God through works. It's because of his nature. It's because of the generosity of the Father that we should pray with boldness. Now the Bible is full of passages like this one which describe the generous nature of God. In fact, there are so many Bible verses about the generosity of God, theologians group them into two broad categories. They're what we call verses about common grace and verses about special grace. Common grace are the blessings that all humanity receives by virtue of being made in the image of God. It rains on the just and the unjust. Special grace are those blessings that are reserved only for the Lord's elect, those who believe in Christ. So let's give a couple examples of common grace. Psalm 65, 9. The psalmist says of God, you visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. Your water, its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. That that's, is the praise of a farmer, obviously, where he sees in every step of agriculture the Lord's goodness and bounty. Psalm 68, 9, you shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it is parched. Every time it rains, it's a manifestation of the generosity of God. But God is even generous to those who don't recognize his existence, let alone his generosity. A great example of this is on Paul's missionary journey. He came to a city called Lystra. And there in the city of Lystra, they worshiped any and everything but the true God of the Bible. And so there was a man there that he ran into who was lame. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, he and Barnabas prayed and this man was miraculously healed. But rather than giving God the glory and thanking God, the people turned their attention to Paul and Barnabas and wanted to worship them. Well, we know Paul would not have that. And so this is what he says in Acts 14, 6 to these people of Lystra. In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. E even among a group of people who had totally turned their back on him and worship rocks and wooden figures rather than the true God, God continued to bless them to be good and faithful and generous to them. He kept sending the rains and the harvest. Of course, the clearest and most amazing proof of God's generosity is salvation. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave, didn't he? That's what a generous person does. He gives and he keeps on giving. God is generous, God is a giver. 1 Timothy 4:10. we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially believers meaning that, that God gives good gifts to all humanity, but he reserves special blessings for believers. Let's talk now about that special grace. Jesus, I believe here in Luke 11, is talking to believers primarily. He is telling them, his disciples, that they can and should come to the heavenly Father with bold prayer, knowing that when they pray with an attitude of giving glory to God. Remember, that's how this prayer started. Remember, this is a commentary on the model prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. 
If we aim at the glory of God in our prayers, we have every reason to expect him to answer that prayer because we know he wants to glorify himself. Knowing that when they pray with the attitude of giving God the glory, he will hear their prayers and meet their needs. Now, let's look at the generosity of God from three perspectives, can we? The first of all is by way of illustration. You know that Jesus was a master teacher and he taught some very deep and profound things, but he did so often using stories from everyday life that even the uneducated could relate to. And here, here's another example here in this section of scripture of the profundity of Jesus using very simple illustration. Let's read it again. Verse five, then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me for a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, don't bother me. The door's already been shut. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, in a very economical way, very few wasted words, Jesus tells this profound story. And it begins at midnight there in the Middle East. Now, midnight doesn't mean too much to us today, but in the ancient world, well, they didn't have electricity and a lot of social media and they didn't have football games that went to seven overtimes. <laughs> People had been in bed for several hours by midnight. They went to bed about dark after they finished their last meal and they got up just as the chickens did the next morning and they worked all day and that's the way the cycle of life went. And so to say he knocked on the door at midnight would have been shocking to people it just simply wasn't done. But Jesus softens that blow by saying it was a friend, a neighbor, two people that knew each other very well. And so the situation was that one neighbor who had eaten all of his bread from the day before had a surprise guest who had been traveling at night, which was not an unusual thing. We know it's uh, the heat is stifling in that part of the world. So even today, many people do their traveling at night. And he shows up unexpectedly at the door. Isn't that always fun when someone comes to the house unexpected and uh, the house is a mess and uh, you throw everything in the closet and try to put on your best, but you go to the kitchen and there's no, nothing in the house. And now there were no 7-Eleven stores to go to in those days, no Uber Eats to call. And so he was in trouble. And so all he knew to do was to go to his closest neighbor, even though it was midnight, and risk ruining the friendship. And he knocks on the door loud enough to wake his neighbor up. And he says, lend me three loaves. Now we say, well, that must have been a, a big traveling party if they need three loaves of bread. Now these are just the three little flat pieces of bread, similar to pita bread that we have today. And it, it was simple an act of hospitality. I preached a sermon a few weeks ago on the need of Christian hospitality. But in the ancient world, it, it was everything. If, if a guest came to your house and you did not feed them, it was ultimate shame. And, and so this man standing in the community was at risk here. He had to serve these people something or it would have been insulting to them. And, and, and so even though he knows it's going to strain his friendship with his neighbor to wake him out of a deep sleep, he's willing to do that. And to his horror... The neighbor didn't say, I understand, it's happened to me before. He says, go away. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed with me. In those days, everyone slept in one large room. 
And, and for one person to get up, man, everybody was awakened. And so he's trying to get him away from the door without waking up everyone in the house. And, and, and Jesus just skips right to the end. He, he doesn't prolong the story as we like to do to make the, the ending a big crescendo finish. He just simply implies that ultimately the man got up because he was worn out with the much knocking. Look, look what he says. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. In other words, he didn't get up and give him the bread out of friendship. He did it out of annoyance because of the persistence of the neighbor. Now, would you agree with me that it takes some boldness to knock on your neighbor's door at midnight and ask to borrow three loaves of bread? Well, I don't recommend you do that. Now, now many people ha have missed the point of this illustration. The point is not that God is the neighbor who is grumpy and sleepy, and the only way to get anything from God is by sheer annoyance, to keep asking him till he finally gives up, Although Jesus did tell a similar parable here in Luke 18 about a widow woman who needed a judge to give her justice and he did not regard man or fear God, the scripture says, but he said, unless she wear me out, I'm going to give her what she wants. But again, that parable is not comparing God to this wicked judge. This is not a comparison. It's a study in contrast. God does not slumber, the scripture says, neither does he sleep. One of the things that really flies all over me is when I hear people say, which I do quite often, that, oh, pastor, I don't pray or I don't want you to pray for me because God is way too busy to bother with my trivial needs. And I think they say that out of some misplaced attempt at humility. But the truth is that's really a slam against God, not a feather in your cap. What you're saying is that God's like us. He gets worn out, he gets annoyed, he gets perturbed by our much asking. That is the opposite of the case. And if you don't hear anything I've said the last three weeks, listen to this. God rejoices in our much asking. God takes joy when we humble ourselves before him and recognize we can do nothing without his help. God is not miserly and grumpy and sleepy like the neighbor in this story. It reminds me of a story of a married woman who went for her annual physical to her physician. And he asked those diagnostic questions as they are wont to do. And he says, do you ever wake up grumpy in the morning? And she says, well, occasionally I do, but usually I just let him sleep. <laughs> and we have the idea that, that God is ill-tempered and grumpy and mean-spirited and he's not. Jesus is not comparing the grumpy neighbor to God. He is contrasting the grumpy, stingy neighbor to God. That God is not like that. The point is that even your grumpy neighbor will sometimes give in to you in your time of need if you persistently ask, how foolish then for one who is a child of God not to come to him in their time of need. God's generosity is clearly illustrated in this story, but it's also verified in verses nine and 10. Look what he says. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks find and to him who knocks, it will be opened. 
Now, Jesus here instructs his disciples that not only can they pray boldly, in fact, they should. And he uses three words, one stronger than the next, building intensity as he goes. Ask, seek, and knock. When we ask for something, it takes some boldness. Probably six or eight times a year, my wife and I are invited to a banquet. And we always know what we expect when we go to a banquet because they're almost assuredly a fundraising banquet. And so you get invited to this banquet and you put on a coat and a tie and, and you go there and you sit around the table with eight or nine strangers and you get to know and have a pleasant time and food is good and usually there's some entertainment and then there's a keynote speaker and then somewhere towards the end of the evening there will be someone who gets up, who is given a very long and eloquent introduction, and then they give you what they call the ask. And you know what the ask is, right? You are there, you find out, because they want some money. Now, I'm not making fun of that technique. We have many wonderful and godly organizations that, that we love to support that way, and, and we know when they ask us what it's all about. But every one of them have a point of boldness and they say now on your table or under your chair there's a packet of materials and reach under your chair and you're going to find this card that looks just like this and on that card it says I will give monthly annually or with my estate when I die that's bold isn't it to ask someone to include you in their will that takes boldness and I admire people in, in, in respect that they believe enough in their organization to ask you to include them in your estate. Well, it takes boldness to ask. Well, Jesus says you need to ask God with boldness for what you need, knowing that the one being asked has the ability and the willingness to answer. That's where our boldness comes from. It doesn't come from the fact that we believe we're worthy of having our prayer answered. It's our belief that the one we're asking has the ability to meet that need and wants to meet that need. And not only that, is our Father. And we have a close, intimate relationship with Him that we can ask whatever we need and know He rejoices in meeting that need. And then He says, seek. An even more intense verb. And, and I take as we look at the scripture in context, he means seek God himself, not just what he can provide. Jesus says it this way in another section of scripture, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The things being the necessities of life, the daily bread. That is when our motive is seeking God's glory, we can and must have confidence in our prayer life. Now there's a warning here. Write it down big and bold. Listen to this warning. There are many false teachers in our world and in our city who use this passage to teach that God has slipped up here somehow. He's made a mistake and obligated himself to give us everything our little hearts desire. And so anything you want, be it a boat, a mansion, or perfect health, you can hold this verse up as a receipt to God and say, aha, caught you. You're obligated to give me whatever my heart desires if I ask, seek, and not. Well, that's as foolish as it is heretical. James 4, 2, and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. 
Most people put an exclamation point on that and frame it over their wall. Have not because you ask not. Whatever I ask, the Lord's obligated to give it. They forget verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. God is not in the business of satisfying every greedy impulse of the human heart. God is in the business of meeting the needs of His children. He does so as we ask, as we seek intimacy with Him, and then as Jesus says, as we do that persistently by knocking. The idea is to knock and keep on knocking until we get an answer. Now that has always perplexed me. Well, why do we need to ask persistently? Seems like once would be enough. In fact, if we take that to its logical conclusion, why would we have to ask at all? God knows what we need. He knows more than we do what we need. Why should we have to ask Him? And, and certainly if we ask Him once, shouldn't that be enough? Well, I did a lot of reading this week on that subject. And probably the best thing I found on that was by a man I'd never heard before. A man by the name of Rankin Welburn. And this is what he writes about knocking in persistent prayer. Quote, if we always got exactly what we wanted the first time we asked, we would inevitably begin to treat God as our genie, only summoned forth to give us our heart's desires. But that is precisely what prayer calls into question. What do you really want? Persistence compels us to the true center of prayer, which is not something but someone. Persistence deepens our relationship with God and compels the heart to examine what it really wants most. Do you want God's will? Do you want God even more than you want what you're asking for? If not, then for God to grant you what you're asking for, even if it is a good thing, might be the most unloving thing God could ever do. In other words, this, this brother is saying, if God gave you immediately everything you wanted, you would miss out on a great opportunity for sanctification. Because when the Lord delays answering those prayers, it focuses the prayer request on God rather than on what God can give, which is what he's after. Would you agree? Intimacy with God is the best gift. And to give you immediately what you want, which is less than intimacy with him, is to shortchange you and God's glory. God doesn't want to do that. He goes on. He says, persistence demands patience, which means waiting. This is the ground of spiritual growth, spiritual vitality and health because our natural inclination is to use God, not to love God. Only frustrations in prayer can purge and purify our desires. Perhaps God desires to give you exactly what you've asked for, but only in a time and way that the gift can truly benefit you instead of harming you. So it goes back really, that's end of quote by the way, to, to do we trust God? Do we really believe that God always does what is right by us? And as I was reading that this week, my heart went back to a time when I was single and I didn't want to be. I wanted to be married and I was 31 before I was married. And, and I remember praying and my parents were praying more intently than I was. <laughs> and I, I dated some girls and there were a few of them I thought maybe I could marry this girl but I never had any peace about that because none of the girls I dated were really going hard after the Lord. And when I finally said, said, Lord, if you want to be single, I will be the rest of my life. That is, my trust in you doesn't depend on my marital status. That is when the Lord answered the prayer. And he brought a very godly woman in my life. 
And I know some of you are struggling with, with singleness. Some of you are struggling with infertility. and Some of you are struggling with unemployment. And it's not wrong to pray. Those are real things in life that he cares about. But if you keep praying and he's seemingly not answering your prayer, it's not because he doesn't love you. And it's certainly not because he can't be trusted. It may very well be he's waiting for a time that that gift can truly benefit you instead of doing you harm. The Lord can be trusted. So pray to him boldly and pray to him persistently. Ask, seek, and knock. Now thirdly and finally, the generosity of God here in verse 11 through 13 is contrasted. Jesus now circles back around to the original point of his illustration. Remember he gave the picture of a grumpy, sleepy, miserly neighbor and he's not comparing God to that neighbor. He's contrasting God against that neighbor. See, God is not our neighbor. He is our father. He has a fundamentally different attitude towards us than even our closest neighbor. We are his children, not his peer. And we know that good fathers meet the needs of their children. This is how Jesus said it in verse 11. Remember, he's, he's speaking to his disciples, not lost people. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? Now Jesus is using exaggeration. Hyperbole is the literary device where you tell something so outrageous that people remember it. And what is outrageous is here's a child who comes to his father hungry and says, can you give me a fish? And he reaches in the bag and so here you go and he gives him a cobra. Something that is designed not to help him but to harm him. And if that weren't enough he follows it up and says what if your child asks you for an egg. Basic food of life in that day and ours as well. And he reaches in the bag and pulls out a scorpion and says here's you go and the scorpion stings him. Now if that actually happened and it were in the newspaper there would be a public outcry to throw the book at him right this is not a father this is a monster and, and yet this is the idea that a lot of people have about God even believers that we can't come to him because he's mean he's closed-fisted or maybe if he answered my prayer it would be something that would harm me Jesus is saying God is not like that. There are people in the world like that. Did you read the story about the man in Colorado who murdered his wife and his beautiful children? Hid them in a well. We're outraged by things like that. But our Father in heaven is not like that. He is good and kind and trustworthy. And he invites us to come with boldness into his presence and, and make his needs known. Not as strangers and aliens, but as children. The, the point is simply this. Almost all earthly fathers in any context culturally do their very best to meet the fundamental needs of life of their own children. When they don't, they are pariahs in the community. The point is God is a much better father than even the best father you know. It's not just that he's better than the worst father you know. He's better than the best father you know. So we can and must and should go to our earthly father with boldness. Look what he says. How much more 
will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? He says, look, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Now he's not saying they are inordinately evil compared to others and probably they're probably some of the best guys around. But compared to God, their goodness is evil. Why Paul says that his own goodness was as filthy rags when he came to understand the holiness of God. And then Jesus puts a twist on the end here. If you're, if you're reading this out loud, you're tempted to fill in the line like this. How much more will your heavenly Father give you good gifts to those who ask him? That's not what he says. He says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So you're asking for the needs of life and instead he gives you the indwelling presence on the Holy Spirit. What in the world is going on here? Well, he circles back around to the whole point of this and that is God is a giver and the greatest gift he can give is himself. It's not things. That's what Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek God himself not what he can do for you. And when you do, he'll give it. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. John MacArthur wrote this about this verse. Quote, to those who ask for a gift, he gives the giver. To those who ask for an effect, he gives the cause. To those who ask for a product, he gives the source. To those seeking comfort, he gives the comforter. To those seeking power, he gives the source of power. To those seeking help, he gives the helper. To those seeking truth, he gives the spirit of truth. To those seeking love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, he gives the producer of all of those things. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the source of every good thing in a Christian's life. Amen and amen. The very best thing the Lord can do is to give you himself. And if you will seek the Lord in intimacy with him, he's going to give you all the things you need. You can trust him to do that. Now let's pray boldly as we go out into the world. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this word. It's encouragement to my heart. And sometimes we don't come to you because we're trying to do it ourselves and don't think we need you. Sometimes we don't come to you because we think you're like our neighbors, miserly and grumpy. And sometimes we don't come to you because we don't trust you. We think that you'll do us harm rather than good. And Lord, forgive us for all the reasons and others that we don't pray. We've seen very, good, very clearly today that you are generous by nature. You always have been. It's not something that happened on the blank page between the Old and New Testament. Even the Old Testament prophets recognize your common grace. Father, we see it here with the abundance all around us. But Lord, we see it most specifically at the cross where Jesus took our place and took the punishment that we obviously deserved. So Lord, Help us to be emboldened in our prayer life, not because we think we deserve it, but because we know you. You're generous. You're predisposed to meet our needs. 
You're not grumpy or miserly or ill-tempered. You're able to do abundantly, exceedingly abundantly, all we could ever ask or even think. And you're willing to do that. You long and take glory in meeting the needs of your children. So Father, help us to weigh our own motives. Do we want these things because it glorifies you or because we want an easy life? We want to be in the spotlight. Father, thank you that you withhold from us sometimes even things we need because it's not the right time. Help us to be patient as we wait on you. Help us to be persistent, knowing that you'll answer that prayer when the time is right, when it will help us and not harm us. I pray specifically for someone in this room, Lord, right now, who's been praying a, a long time, and they feel like you've forgotten them. Encourage their heart today, Lord, to know that uh, as you're a child, you love them, and you can be trusted. Help us, Lord, to trust you more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.